uh, our speaker today needs no introduction, so I'm not going to give him one, uh, other than uh, to say uh, Sebastian Rosado, a graduate of uh, Cambridge University in England, uh, went up in the world by making the tr long trip across the pond, two ponds, the Atlantic Ocean and then Lake Michigan to uh, do his graduate work uh, at the uh, University of Chicago, uh, postdocs at the uh, Kennedy School and uh, the Olin Institute uh, at the Weatherhead Center, um, and uh, a long-term faculty member here at Notre Dame and one of the uh, founding uh, uh, fathers uh, of the Notre Dame International Security Program. Uh, please join me in giving a warm South Bend welcome to Sebastian Rosado. Thanks, Mike. Mike told me that clock doesn't work, and I said, that's fine, because I don't know how long I'm going to speak for, um, but I'll try and keep it uh, to, say, 40 minutes. Uh, I must be preoccupied about this talk, because I just was over at ABP, and I bought this tea, and I walked out, and I got to the other side of the reflecting pool, and I realized I hadn't paid for it, um, because I was thinking about intentions. So I went back, and as I'm walking through the door, I said, what am I going to say? Am I going to pull the absent-minded professor thing, which is my usual strategy, uh, especially with the British accent? Or am I going to say, I intended to pay for this tea when I walked in. The question is, what happened while I was here? <laughs> Did my intentions change? Or do intentions not guarantee actions? Then I thought, no, they probably couldn't care less. Um, so uh, I went with absent-minded professor. Um, which also I'm going to talk about intentions. Um, I... Uh, it's a little bit cumbersome, but uh, I'm only going to say or give uh, two, uh, make two points. Uh, I'm going to talk about why I think intentions are important, why I've spent the last three years of my life studying them, why I'm going to spend the next two years of my life writing about them, uh, and then uh, I'm going to tell you why great powers are always uncertain about each other's intentions. Um, so. That's the theory, um, I guess, my theory of intentions. Um, Mike told me I could run this any way I wanted, and so um, I really want to run it as a workshop on the paper. Um, I'm going to talk about my theory. I thought about talking about something that was not in the reading, but I'm going to talk about the reading and talk about the theory. Um, and I would love to hear, uh, right at the end uh, of uh, the paper, for those of you that read it, um, I say that um, virtually no one agrees with me. There are a ton of counter-arguments out there. I purposely did not talk about the counter-arguments because I would love to hear what people's favorite counter-arguments are. Um, so um, I just want to get into the argument itself, anything that you think is wrong with the argument uh, on its own merits, and then uh, what your favorite counter-arguments are. You, you can, of course, ask me any questions you want, but that's what I hope to get out of it. Um, one prefatory point, uh, I'm going to assume that everybody got through the first seven pages. Um, I know Sean McGraw only got through four, but that's not bad. Um, so I'm going to just assume everyone knows what I think intentions are, what I think uncertainty is. Uh, I, not to say that you agree with what I think they are, but just that you're clear on what I think they are. Um, and that when I throw out words like confident, uncertain, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you don't, it's only seven pages. You can read it while I'm speaking. Um, so, why are intentions uh, important? Uh, it's 
very hard to read anything about U.S.-China relations and not come across uh, the whole idea uh, of intentions. Uh, most people argue that uh, uncertainty about intentions is the root cause of the emerging security competition uh, between the two of them. Uh, my favorite is a Brookings Report uh, piece that came out two or three years ago. Um, this was you know, pre all the bad things the U.S. has said about China today. Um, and the British report says the United States and China are working to build better relations, but they may be headed for trouble, quote, because of mutual distrust of each other's long-term intentions. Uh, the Department of Defense at roughly the same time uh, said that the reason there was so much friction between the U.S. and China and that the U.S. was concerned about China's rise uh, was that there was little, quote, clarity of China's strategic intentions. Um, the Chinese, by the way, think exactly the same thing uh, about the United States, though <laughs> I think they may be less uncertain about intentions now uh, than they were, let's say, three or four weeks ago. Um, but anyway, um, James Steinberg and Michael O'Hanlon, who are two big China watchers, um, wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs, um, and uh, they talked about uh, the pivot, uh, Obama's pivot uh, to Asia, um, and the claim that this was to enhance regional security for everybody. And they said, not surprisingly, quote, few Chinese, particularly in the military and national security communities, are convinced that the United States has good intentions. Um, so it's on both sides. The flip side of this is that people think that if we can achieve confidence about intentions, um, then this would reduce competition. And parenthetically, people argue that not only that if we could, it would reduce competition, but actually there are chances, it's actually quite likely, uh, that we can. Uh, none other than Henry Kissinger. Uh, Henry Kissinger gave an Atlantic interview um, a couple of months back. Um, and the interviewer, in a very ingratiating comment, said, just to be clear, uh, the stability of the planet depends on its two most powerful countries understanding what the other wants. And Kissinger says, yes, and that requires transparency toward each other. Um, Graham Allison uh, has come up with uh, a term called the Thucydides trap. It's the argument that as one great power rises and another declines, um, the question is, do they end up in conflict? And Allison says that, you know, uh, of the 16 cases his research assistants have, I was going to say him, but that his research assistants have researched in history, uh, in 12 cases, conflict, uh, actually in 12 cases, war uh, eventuated. And in four of them, uh, there was no war. Um, and despite that pretty spotty uh, record, uh, he says, uh, we can avoid war. Uh, and we can avoid major conflict with China. The key, and this is in his New York Times editorial, is <coughs> leaders in both China and the United States must begin talking to each other much more candidly about likely confrontations and flashpoints. Uh, and then Thomas Christensen, who's a, um, I guess, the leading China expert, certainly the, in my eyes, um, recently wrote a book called The China Challenge. Um, and he says, conflict is not destiny with China. Um, the United States is perfectly capable of combining threats with reassurance, uh, making it very clear uh, what our intentions are, and that this will limit great power competition uh, between the two states. Um, so intentions are everywhere.
Um, and I haven't even talked about Russia, but I, I could say the same things uh, about Russia. Uh, they also loom very, very large in the academy. Um, whether or not great powers uh, are uncertain about each other's intentions uh, is, I actually think, the single most important question in IR theory today. Uh, it used to be different things. It used to be anarchy, um, survival. That was in the 1990s, relative gains, institutions. The single most important issue today in IR theory is about intentions. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, they are at the heart of the security dilemma, which is probably the most famous concept in the field. The security dilemma says that the measures a state takes to increase its security, usually by increasing its military capability, the measures it takes to increase security decrease the security of others. That's the dilemma. Um, now, it's not a dilemma if you know that they don't plan to do you any harm. Right? If you're confident about their intentions, there is no dilemma. Right? The dilemma arises because you are uncertain about whether or not they plan to do you harm with their new capabilities. Um, so that's the security dilemma. Um, intention is also at the heart of the debate between structural realism uh, and its critics. Um, this is not very clear in structural realist scholarship, but structural realists, and there are less than five, and two of them are dead, um, John Hurst, Kenneth Waltz, John Mearsheimer, um, their grim view of the world, uh, the argument that conflict uh, is inevitable, uh, great power competition is ineradicable, is predicated on the fact that states cannot be, insert, uh, cannot be certain about each other's intentions. Um, again, they're not clear about it, and I'm very happy to talk about it. I, I love nothing better than talk about the role of uncertainty in realist theory, but uh, trust me on this. They're not clear about it, but that's what they mean. Uncertainty causes competition, and it drives the entire uh, realist uh, train. Uh, critics know that, and they've seized on the concept um, and identified conditions in which states can reach confident conclusions about intentions. Uh, if they are right, uh, realism is dead, um, which would only make a couple of us in this room unhappy. Um, but uh, let me let me uh, let me talk about a fantastic quote. John Mearsheimer in the Atlantic, where he was interviewed uh, a few years back, uh, he goes on and on about realism, and then he says, "Uncertainty of intentions." This is written in capital letters uh, in the Atlantic piece. Uncertainty of intentions is my Sunday punch in defense of realism, right? Um, what he was reflecting there was that in, uh, uncertainty about intentions drives the realist train. And if you can knock out that plank, you kill realism. Because realism doesn't have anything else that distinguishes its grim worldview from anybody else. Everybody agrees the international system's anarchic. States want to survive. Basically, everyone agrees states are rational actors, including Waltz, despite his own claims. Right? The single biggest difference is where they stand uh, on intentions. Um, so if the critics are right, realism's dead. If the critics are wrong, uh, it's hard for me to see how you defeat realism. So for real-world and theoretical reasons, uh, I came to the question, can great powers reach confident conclusions about each other's intentions, or must they always be uncertain? And let me tell you uh, what my answer to that question is. Um, the claim, not the logic. The claim. Uh, great powers are always uncertain about the current and future intentions of their peers, and therefore 
evaluate threats to their security by examining other states' capabilities. Uh, that is the basic claim. Um, this has a couple of consequences, going back to the previous discussion. In the real world, uh, it means that U.S.-China competition is inevitable if China continues to rise. Um, it also means that realism is superior uh, to alternative approaches to understanding great power politics. Um, now, a note on the claim. Uh, this is actually a very, very different claim, and I, I only came to this conclusion recently, uh, from others in the literature. Most scholars are intentions optimists. They'll give you all sorts of reasons, I just said earlier, but conditions under which uh, you can reach confident conclusions uh, about intentions. Um, and when I say most scholars, I'm talking about the who's who of international relations. Bob Jervis, Charlie Glazer, Andy Kidd, uh, Mark Haas, John Owen, Bruce Russett, Randy Schweller, Michael Doyle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a very small minority of scholars are intentions pessimists. Hers, Waltz, Mearsheim. But their claims are also very different from mine. Uh, first, they don't claim that states are uncertain. Uh, their argument is that states cannot be 100% certain. Um, they actually acknowledge, if you look at the updated edition of John Mearsheimer's book, the, 24, uh, the 2014 edition, page 529, footnote 3, John says, states can be 99% can be certain about each other's intentions, but that's not enough, right? So he acknowledges that states can be close to certain uh, about uh, intentions. He just says that for his theory to work, uh, 99 is not enough. So they don't claim uncertainty. They claim lack of 100% certainty. And second, they just claim it. It's just an assumption. They, they don't have an argument for why it is that states uh, remain uncertain about each other's intentions, which leads me to uh, the logic. Um, my argument for why uncertainty uh, is pervasive uh, is that great powers lack reliable information about each other's intentions. Um, they can't get it directly because it's unobservable. I'm going to unpack this. And this typically leads them to try and infer it uh, from other things that they can know. Um, but they can't get reliable information from things they can know because things they can know are only ambiguously related uh, to intentions. Um, third, um, they are uh, subject to deception. I'll talk about deception in a bit. And that complicates the task even further. And finally, they can't get reliable information about future intentions because those do not yet exist. Um, so four things. Unobservable, only ambiguously related to known facts, uh, subject to deception, and liable to change. Um, that's... Uh, the logic. And again, that all comes under the idea of lack of information. Um, so let's go through them one at a time. Um, oh, did I already say that? Okay. So intentions are unobservable. Um, when I first started writing this, I thought this was obvious, um, but actually it turns out a lot of people disagree. So uh, intentions in decision makers' minds, they're in people's minds. Um, that's actually a more controversial uh, claim than I thought it was, but I'm going to stick with it. Um, they're in people's minds. Um, and you can't see into other people's minds. Again, there are some people who 
certain philosophers who claim that you can. Um, again, uh, I'll set that aside. I think they're in people's minds, um, and I think you can't see into people's minds. Um, and the people's minds we're talking about are a very small group. Uh, when we talking about the intentions of a state, we're talking about a handful of key decision makers. So they're in their minds, you can't see in minds, and there are a few minds uh, that we're dealing with. Now, intentions do come out of the mind. They, decision makers will talk to each other, so they, they will come out, they, they can in principle be seen or heard. Um, so they're verbalized. Uh, they may, may even have to negotiate those intentions uh, among themselves. Um, but this is important. They very, very rarely leave a paper trail. They stay as understandings um, that people, uh, that the top decision makers have come to. Uh, and I just want to give you an example. Um, people used to ask me about this all the time. What if we had found the Schlieffen plan before World War I? So would we have known Germany's intentions? And my argument would be no. We would have known Germany's military plan in the event of war, but we would not have known whether Germany planned to deploy it for aggressive purposes or only in self-defense. We would not have known Germany's intentions, um, and those intentions weren't written down. Um, now, we can recreate them by going back uh, and looking at secret memoranda that travel between people, um, though I think that's very, very difficult. Um, but um, there's, there's a difference between intentions and military plans. Um, again, intentions are intangible um, and uh, don't leave a paper trail. Um, second point, and this, this argument, by the way, is only mildly controversial. Um, most people would agree that they're unobservable. Um, in political science, people usually talk about preferences being unobservable, but they would, I think, um, not have a problem with me expanding that claim to intentions are unobservable. Um, so most agree. And what they say is that they are, however, related to things that you can know. And so you can't see intentions, but you can see other things, and you can know those other things with confidence, and you can infer intentions from them. Um, you can know what another state's core objectives are. Um, you can see their behavior with confidence. Uh, these are what I call in the paper known facts. Of course, nothing is truly known, but they're known. They're, they're, you can be confident about them. The problem is that the relationship between these known facts and intentions is ambiguous. Um, and what do I mean by ambiguous? I mean that interests, which again... Uh, core objectives, core interests, which can be known in actions, which can be seen, have multiple meanings when it comes to intentions. Um, so you can know these facts, but they have multiple meanings, and therefore you can't know what intentions flow from them. Let me uh, get into that a little bit more. Let me start with interests. Um, you can't know a lot about other states' interests with confidence, um, but security is an exception. Um, you can be quite sure that other states want to be secure. Um, it's a known fact in my language uh, that states want to preserve the integrity of their physical base, the autonomy of their governing institutions. Um, so that you can know. The problem is that 
the desire for security can lead to different, very different uh, intentions. Um, you can achieve security by non-aggressive means. Um, so your interest in security can lead you to have benign intentions, non-aggressive intentions. Um, what would that look like? Um, internal balancing, right? You increase troops and weapons. You innovate to know what your intention will be. Um, actions. You can know a lot about actions um, because you can see them. Um, I don't want to overstate this. Uh, sometimes you can't see actions. Uh, sometimes actions are unclear. Um, but you can see what actions uh, are being performed. Or, or in, again, in my lexicon, we can agree that there are some known facts that involve actions. Um, the problem, again, is ambiguity. Um, actions have multiple meanings. Uh, what does it mean when a state increases its military assets? Uh, does it mean that it has aggressive intentions and it is arming to attack? Or does it mean that it has, uh, it only plans to defend itself, but again, needs to arm? Um, I give it the example of Edward Gray um, in my piece, who said to the German ambassador, he's like, look, it's like Germany's arming. It's a known fact, right? But there is a ton of disagreement about Germany's intentions. Some think that Germany is aggressive. Others, like me, I mean, he was, he was trying to make a point, uh, don't think Germany's aggressive. We think it's purely for defensive purposes. Um, decreases in assets are also ambiguous. Um, are you decreasing your assets because you have benign intentions and you don't need them? Um, or because you're aggressive, but you fear that you're losing an arms race and you want to reload and compete in a different arena. Um, confrontational diplomacy. Uh, are you seeking a pretext for conflict? Right? Are you, do you have aggressive intentions? Or are you acting out of fear? Um, conciliatory diplomacy. You're trying to resolve divi divisive issues, um, and therefore you're benign, or you're trying to gain time uh, to prepare an attack, um, and you're actually malign. Um, it's just hard to know. Very important. None of these, I'm going to talk about deception in a second. None of these actions involve deception. It's the action itself that's ambiguous. Um, when uh, the, the first time I came across this kind of argument, I was reading a piece by Bob Jervis in a little-known edited volume on psychology. And Jervis talks about what it's like to walk home uh, from Columbia University at night. And he says, there's cops on every corner. And I'm always asking myself, what does this mean, right? Does it mean that I should feel very secure because there are cops at every corner? Or does it mean that I'm in a very dangerous neighborhood and people feel that you need cops at every corner, right? Actions are ambiguous. Um, there wasn't a single example in there, by the way, of international relations, which is why I had to struggle to find them uh, for, for this piece. Um, but the, the point is well made. Actions themselves uh, are ambiguous. Now... There are some actions that are unambiguous. Am I still on the right slide? Yes. Um, there are some actions that are unambiguous. If I were to disarm completely, I think you could be pretty confident that uh, I don't have malign intentions. Um, if I were to go on a war footing, I think you could be pretty sure. Though you wouldn't be that sure, right, whether I was preparing to defend myself or attack. But you could be pretty sure that I had aggressive intentions. Um, problem is that 
states won't take those kinds of actions because they compromise their ability to be successful in international politics. As I said right at the beginning of the chapter, I should have said at the beginning of the talk, states are strategic actors. They're not going to do things that are dumb. Uh, no state is going to disarm completely. No state is going to advertise five years before the fact that it's coming for you. Uh, they will keep these things uh, to themselves. Um, as if these problems weren't enough, uh, great powers have uh, enormous incentives uh, to deceive others. Um, and by deception, I mean to conceal their plans and to misrepresent their plans, secrets uh, and lies. Um, why do they have that incentive? Uh, to gain an advantage over other states and to prevent those states gaining an advantage over them. Um, if, uh, if you have aggressive intentions, you want to go to enormous lengths to hide that from a potential victim so they can't get ready for you. Um, you want to go even further and pretend that you have benign intentions to throw them off their guard. Um, this is what it means to be a strategic actor uh, in international politics. Um, it, you understand that you have incentives uh, to deceive, and all states understand that other states have incentives uh, to deceive. Um, so they have these incentives, and it turns out that states deceive all the time. The much more common example of deception is concealment. Concealment is complex. States keep things to themselves. I have the Deng Xiaoping quote in there, which I love. Though in the footnote, there's the one from the Japanese uh, foreign minister, which I actually prefer. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, this is statecraft 101, right? You keep your intentions to yourself, uh, and states do it all the time. Not only do they hide their intentions, they hide often, not always, they often hide actions or behaviors that could lead others to infer intentions. Um, so, secrecy uh, is commonplace. Um, misrepresentation is less common, um, but still a real possibility. Um, states will lie about their intentions, or they will engage in actions that give a false impression about their intentions. Um, the canonical case here uh, is Hitler. Um, Hitler, by the way, was a case for every single element of this theory, and I said, we can't have a theory that is based on Hitler, because then it just doesn't explain anything. Um, but uh, Hitler is your canonical case, right? He was the master uh, at misrepresenting uh, his intentions. Um, deception complicates, again, it's, states have a huge incentive to do it, uh, it's commonplace, um, and it complicates the problem of discerning current intentions. Uh, in meaningful ways. Um, so it adds to the problem of unobservability and ambiguity. Um, first, uh, it means that there's just not much information available, right? Um, because uh, states engage uh, in concealment, there's just not a lot of information about their intentions out there. Um, and again, overcoming uncertainty is all about gaining information. And second, what little information there is and you can get hold of cannot be trusted, right? It's unreliable. And again, because states know that other states are thinking uh, the same way as they are. Um, 
Moving on to future intentions. Uh, states have next to no information about future intentions. Uh, because even if they have good information about them today, uh, intentions can change. Um, and to make matters worse, they can change for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I just want to split them into domestic reasons and international reasons. Uh, domestically, new leaders with new intentions can come to power. Um, we will find that out on Friday. Um, Trump is very good for this argument. Um, same leaders uh, may stay in power and just change their minds. And there are all sorts of reasons they might change their minds. Um, they could change their minds uh, because they get pressure from domestic interest groups. They could change their minds because they have trouble at home and they originally had a benign, uh, benign intentions, but they think that if they adopt malign intentions, they can distract attention from their problems at home. Um, this is a diversionary war argument. I'm not saying they go to war, but they can certainly have uh, behave in uh, malign ways. Um, they may even have personal reasons, this is not in the piece, to change their minds. Um, my friend John Deke, who's not here, note that down, um, he said he was coming. He can never know someone's intentions. I was going to say. <laughs> um, uh, he, uh, he studies the Habsburg Empire, and he told me that the uh, chief of the Austro-Hungarian general staff uh, was all about acting aggressively abroad uh, and was converted to that view from a much more benign view because he was a Roman Catholic and he hated his wife and he wanted to marry his mistress. And he thought that if they could have a glorious war and win it, um, and he would be credited with the great victory, that he could somehow get a pardon from the Vatican. I don't know if that's even possible. But like, and, you know, uh, get his wish. But the point is, there's all sorts of reasons you can change your intentions. And, I mean, that's an extreme case. I don't want to hang the argument on that. There's all sorts of reasons you change. Then there are international reasons. Um, the international distribution of capabilities is constantly changing. States are going up and down in military capabilities all the time. States rise and states fall. States suddenly find themselves weaker, states suddenly find themselves stronger. And when their means, the means they have to carry out actions change, their, act, their plans of action can also change. And they don't change in a predictable way. Um, if you're a state that's in decline, um, you may adopt benign intentions, right? And just try and keep everything as it is, be nice, don't get into any spats, right? Um, and try and ride it out. Or you may think this is your last chance before you decline completely and adopt very aggressive intentions and decide you're going to attack. This is the preventive war logic, right? The point is, capabilities are always changing. Um, that's sort of a law of international politics. And you don't know what effect those changes will have on states' intentions. Mike, how long do I have left? Yeah, what time did we start? Uh, we started about 20 or 5. So that's 33 minutes. Okay. Um, thanks. Um, I, I, it's too nice. Thank to you. Put on my, uh, <laughs>
This was only 75 bucks. This was mm. 60. <laughs> uh, so what do states do in this situation? You're uncertain about intentions. And my argument is that they turn to capabilities. Um, now, it's very important. This does not mean that states give up efforts to discern intentions. Right? There's too much evidence in the world that states work hard to figure out others' intentions. Right? So states don't give up just because they're uncertain. Um, one reason they don't give up is if they could figure them out, it's the silver bullet. Right? There are no unknowns, and life is easy. Um, but more uh, prosaically, um, even moderate certainty is good, right? States have uh, finite resources, and they have to figure out how to allocate them. Um, and it matters if you have more or less of a sense that one state is a threat or not. Um, so you care about intentions, even if they don't get you to confidence, or right? even if you can't get to confidence, what, what you can know between, let's say, 50 and 60 percent, though I don't want to talk in terms of probability, um, but what you can know there matters uh, in terms of making foreign policy decisions. Um, and then the final point, um, the final reason that you continue uh, to try and figure them out is it's actually not that costly, right? So when you're trying to figure out intentions, what are you doing? You're listening to what they say, you're watching what they do, right? That's what happens in everyday life. Um, and so there aren't enormous costs. The payoff may not be great, but there aren't enormous costs uh, to trying to find the information that will be relevant uh, to figuring out someone's intentions. So they don't give up. They keep doing it. Um, it also doesn't mean that states assume the worst about each other's intentions. Um, coming to a judgment one way or the other, even if it's a um, more likely, less likely judgment is not assuming the worst. Um, states are just short of confident. That's it. Um, they don't assume the worst. They're just short of confident. So they try and improve their confidence by looking for something that they can measure. And what they do is they turn to capabilities. Um, why capabilities? Because they are easier to estimate than intentions. This is very, very important. They are not easy to estimate. They are easier to estimate. Um, they're easier to observe because uh, a state's capabilities are tangible rather than intangible. Um, they're more reliably related uh, to known facts. Um, a state that adds uh, military assets, comes up with a new technology, um, you can infer that it is now more powerful. So you can see things, and you can make an inference, and that inference is pretty reliable. They are harder to conceal and misrepresent uh, than intentions. They are slower to change. Intentions can change overnight, like January 20th. Um, but they change slower. It takes time to recruit people, uh, to build weapons, to change false postures, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but as I just said, it's not easy. Um, States can deceive each other about capabilities. Uh, even if they don't deceive each other, it's not easy to figure out how a state's forces are going to um, fare on the battlefield. Uh, Steve Van Evera has a whole chapter, as I think does Blaney, about states have just got it wrong. They thought they were going to win. They had the capabilities to win. They just got it wrong. Um, 
sometimes uh, known facts are not reliably related uh, to capabilities. Um, you see that a state is innovating, um, but you don't know if that innovation is going to bear fruit and lead them to have much better fighting power or not. Um, sometimes capabilities do change quickly um, as a result of innovation, right? Prussia, uh, no one thought Prussia was going to beat France. Wrong, right? Um, Prussia had found uh, a better way to fight. Um, so I'm not saying that it is easy to figure out capabilities, but it, e it is easier um, and therefore states concentrate on capabilities when they evaluate threats and not uh, on intentions. Um, so, yeah, uh, as I said at the beginning, what I was going to do was present uh, my theory, and this is my theory. My claim is great powers can't reach confident conclusions about the intentions of their peers. My logic is that they can't do so because they can't acquire reliable information about them because of unobservability, ambiguity, uh, deception, and change. Um, and the result is that they look to capabilities to identify threats to their security. Um, as I said, I'd welcome uh, any comments on the theory and especially on your favorite counter-arguments. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Sebastian. Uh, the floor is open. I'm hoping we'll get an undergraduate uh, to ask the first question. Well, the undergraduates are uh, looking at their shoes. Uh, and uh, if you don't jump into the breach, uh, Dan Lindley or Amitabha Dutt is going to go first. And we can't have that. So going once, going twice. Everybody else undergraduate? Yeah. <laughs> OK, floor, floor is open. Dan. Just to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy on part. Um, so Sebastian, um, thanks for the talk. I'm wondering why you said that realism requires uncertainty and why the security dilemma requires uncertainty. I don't see why realism just doesn't depend on an anarchic world where conflict sometimes happens. Um, there's a security dilemma because if you increase your security, you decrease somebody else's security, etc. Um, those things seem to happen independent of uncertainty. I think the role of uncertainty comes into play because it creates a situation where you want to do worst case assumptions. And you had a little bit on the prior slide about that, but you didn't really talk about it. So I'd love for you to expand on, on worst case. It seems like if you don't know, the automatic assumption under anarchy is to assume the worst about somebody's intentions and probably their capabilities as well. Um, so if you were more certain, you reduced uncertainty, you would have less worst casings. You could actually know what's going on. But in the face of uncertainty, you get worst casing. But neither of those things seem to be core to the security dilemma uh, or realism itself. So I'm wondering if you could uh, talk a bit more about the role of uncertainty. You're not going to ask five questions? That was about six or seven, I think. Um, Well, I could tell you why I think realism requires uncertainty and the security dilemma requires uncertainty, but um, I don't really need to. I mean, realists are very clear that their theory requires uncertainty. Uh, security dilemma theorists from Gerbit, no, John Hers onwards all argue that uncertainty is the root problem. Um, 
you can't get conflict. You can't get conflict with anarchy. Anarchy just means there's no government. Um, so imagine there's no government. Um, if I knew that uh, you were armed to the hilt, but you loved me, why would we ever compete? Uh, you, you, you need uncertainty to have competition. Um, so, I mean, anarchy is not a cause of conflict. Anarchy is a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Permissive ba condition. Yeah, permissive condition. But uncertainty is what drives the train. I mean, to get the, comp the competitive train out of the station, uh, you got to have uncertainty. And uh, that's universally agreed. I mean, that's, again, I could tell you why. I, I mean, I've, I've looked at the role that uncertainty plays in these various people's arguments, but it's always there. Um, so, um, now, it's a question about worst casing. You've asked me about this before uh, in the hallway. Um, and so I don't understand. If you don't, if you're not confident, you could still be moderately certain or slightly certain. Wait, so why would you assume the worst? I mean, if I'm moderately certain that you are aggressive, uh, or if I'm moderately certain that you're peaceful, let's say I, I assume, I, I, I come to the conclusion, I'm moderately certain that you're peaceful, um, then I can spend less time and less resources, again, resources are finite, on you than on someone else. I mean, it would be completely counterproductive to assume the worst in that situation, right? Like, now you're shifting the argument. Your main argument is that intentions are uncertain. Now you're saying you can get a modest amount of certainty and therefore avoid all these problems. Dan, so did you read the paper? I did. My point is that there's this spectrum of uncertainty, and it goes from fully uncertain to fully certain. And I actually don't think either that policymakers are ever in either of the two end positions. Um, this is, I don't think there's any such thing as complete ignorance. And I don't think there's any such thing as complete certainty. Um, but there's a scale. And I say there's slightly certain, moderately certain, mm. and then near certain, which is co which I call confidence. right? Um, so uncertainty is short of confidence. But there's a lot of stuff short of confidence. And the, uh, the argument that that information is useless, I, I think I'd be crazy to make it. I mean, that information is useful. In fact, by the way, um, people who argue about moderate uncertainty and slight uncertainty, um, they, they sorry, slight certainty and moderate certainty, they talk about information as useful. They, they call it useful information um, or helpful information. Um, but So I don't know why you would say it's useless. I mean, if you assume the worst, you're basically saying that information... Sentence, so they cannot reach confidence in conclusions about the intentions of others which means that they can't reach near certain conclusions about the intentions of others. But they can reach slight or moderate, or I'm prepared to grant that they can reach slight or moderate, moderately certain conclusions. But that's not worst case, right? Okay, uh, Ben Dennison. Uh, thank you, Sebastian, for the paper. I had uh, just two quick points. Are you tweeting about this right now? No, I'm not. Um, Aren't you meant to? First, my favorite counter-argument, because um, I'm working on something similar to this counter-argument, it'd be useful to hear you talk about. The 
why do states ever try to know intentions? Um, they can't reach confident conclusions if you could spell that out more. Or rather, why do states try to deceive if they already know that their intentions are unknowable? Um, or why are states ever lulled in to kind of feeling secure and then get uh, attacked when they should be assuming um, that they don't really know those intentions to begin with? So kind of unpacking that more uh, would be helpful to hear. Um, and then also kind of in the second point in terms of workshopping the paper, one thing I think you can maybe extend or add to is uh, if you look at the literature on commitment problems, signaling, or even timing consistency problems, we can't, it seems that uh, states by themselves can't know their own future intentions uh, well enough to kind of signal or they don't know what's going to be happening in the future. Um, so if you can't credibly know your own intentions in the future, how can we expect to know others' intentions in the future? Um, that would be something to kind of extend uh, out into, you know, as another argument in favor of your, uh, your own argument. Um, so can you go back to, so what was the, uh, um, I, I got the thing about future intentions. What was your point about um, uh, the counter-argument? Oh, this is the, the argument that why do states ever um, try to learn others' intentions? If, it's, if you can't reach confident conclusions, why do you spend time and resources trying to assess uh, intentions? Or why do you uh, spend time and resources trying to deceive? If you know just by going about your regular business, um, people aren't going to be able to okay. figure out your intentions, why would you spend resources on that? Um, and the other one would be, why, why would you ever be lulled in to a false sense of security um, if you should be questioning the intentions of others to begin with? Start with future intentions first because it's much easier. Um, um, I agree, you can't know your own future intentions. So you're absolutely right. Um, some people I would actually argue that you can't know your current intentions. And I do not want to go there, right? Because otherwise, um, I, I did used to go there, and I was called an intentions nihilist. Um, and th there's no th there's no debate. If you if you say that you don't know your own intentions, then there's no debate. There's no point in writing a book, right? It ends there. Um, I'm a topic. You're you're further down. You, you, the list. You, 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 <laughs> um, He's a but, list nihilist. Um, so I, I completely agree. Um, but but I would say to you, I, I do think states know their own current intentions. Um, and now. They can get them wrong. There's a great piece by a guy called Joseph O'Mahony. We should maybe hire a today. O'Mahony. <laughs> yeah. um, and in Journal of International Theory, and he talks about the fundamental problem of reason attribution, figuring out other people's reasons for action. Um, and he says the problem is that you can't introspect them, but you can introspect yourself. Um, so you can see inside your own mind. Right? He says that's not foolproof. Right? You may deceive yourself. Individuals can get their own intentions wrong. Right? But the idea that you can't access your own intentions, um, or that you don't have intentions, um, I, think, uh, uh, I think is wrong. So I, and and, and I, he would agree with that. Um, now, why do you ever try to deceive? Um, well, again, if, if you could, it would be great. Right. I mean, if you can, if you could, um, if you plan to attack somebody um, and take them out, and you could um, deceive them, uh, then the payoff would be enormous. Or if you're a pussycat um, and you can persuade them that you're not, the payoff is enormous. You get security at 
very low cost. Um, this is the silver bullet argument I made about why would you ever try to figure them out. Um, the benefits are just so enormous um, that I, I think you try. And I would, I would take issue with your claim that it's costly to do so. Um, yeah, it's costly, but anything is costly. I mean, waking up in the morning is costly. But it just doesn't seem to me that it's that costly. Um, again, compared to the, the benefits. The, the benefits are highly unlikely. Uh, but it doesn't seem to me that... I mean, if, um, if you're trying to figure out another state's intentions, and you're engaged in diplomacy, you have to engage in diplomacy anyway um, to live in the international system. And so the additional cost of asking what their intentions are just, just doesn't seem that great to me. Um, Do you think then that states are self-aware that they don't have confident conclusions about intentions? Yeah. So uh, I've done some case work. I've looked at um, all arms races and arms control agreements in the last 200 years. Um, they're actually only 16. Is that um, the universe? It's the universe of cases. Oh, okay. It's methodologically right appropriate yeah, strategy. But I've, I've looked at every single case, and I ask myself in every single case, um, what do these two parties to the race or the agreement conclude about each other's intentions afterwards, right? after the agreement or during the arms race? Um, and they always conclude that they just don't know, and they just can't figure it out. Um, and I mentioned in the footnote in chapter one, um, I put in the kind of language that would show uncertainty, and that language is everywhere in the documents. And I still haven't found a single example, not true, found one. With one exception, I haven't found a single example of somebody saying, I know, right, or I am confident that that state is aggressive or peaceful. The single exception, and I'll tell you why it's even more exceptional in a second, is Winston Churchill, right? Winston Churchill is like, I know the Germans are coming for us, right? Um, and what makes his case even more exceptional is he was right. Um, but of course, he wasn't right. History proved him to be right. Um, but even Churchill, if you look at his, uh, his private correspondence, um, it's pretty clear that a lot of his statements about I know... Uh, were done for political purposes to get a policy enacted that he wanted. And it's not clear that he actually believed it. But again, I, I'm not prepared to fight that. I mean, I'll, I'll agree, right? Winston Churchill, you know, was confident, but he wasn't in the government, didn't have a say in policy making. So I don't care. Um, but it's very, very rare. Um, you just see, um, uh, let me put it a different way. I know this is a long winded answer, but I've been thinking about um, this. I actually think that uh, policymakers think the way my theory says they do. Um, and I think they're very, very smart, and they look at information, and they evaluate it, and they understand the pitfalls, and they know what's going on. I actually think that people who are naive are the international relations theorists who examine these cases like, oh, this evidence is very clear. You know, this state started an arms race. Um, it's clear to everybody that it has aggressive intentions. Um, not at all clear. Um, starting an arms race, in, in my book, is an ambiguous action. I can talk about arms races if anybody wants to, but it's ambiguous. Um, and decision makers understand that. There's actually a real disconnect between where theorists stand 
on what reasonable uh, responses are to actions and interests and what decision makers uh, think. Okay, we've got uh, 25 minutes and seven questions, just to, uh, or seven questioners, each with five questions. So that's 35 questions. Siok uh, Jun. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for presenting a very nice work on uh, theory of intentions from the structuralist perspective. I have a few questions, but I will limit to um, just one set of questions. Uh, but this is for clarification. Um, this paper defines intentions are plans of action. First, it, is it different from Blazer's use of the same terminology? How is it different from his use of intentions? Um, second, on page three, this paper says a state did not have the same intention toward all of its competitors, and then says it has malign intentions if it plans to threaten or use force, and benign intentions if it has no such plans. Then, can a state be benign and malign at the same time toward different countries? Defensive realists and motivational realists, such as Glazer, uses terminologies such as motives, status quo versus revisionist, benign versus malign states. How do you explain those long-term intentions with your definition of intentions? Are they mid medium or long intentions, or do you have other ways to explain these kind of long-term intentions, which is motives? Um, my definition of intention is exactly the same as Glaser's. Um, and in fact, um, yeah, so it's exactly the same. And my definition of motives slash interests, which are synonymous, is exactly the same as Glaser's. We agree completely uh, on those issues. Um, the difference between us is he thinks the issue is motives and I think the issue is intentions. That is a big difference between us. But our definitions are exactly the same. Um, now, um, this whole question about um, sort of long-term motives. Um, so this is, this is a counter-argument um, to my argument about ambiguity. Um, so my argument is that you can know that states want security, um, but that is ambiguous with respect to intentions. Um, other people say you can know if a state uh, is a status quo or revisionist power, i.e. if it wants to change the system or if it wants to keep the system as it is. And they say that that gives you a better understanding of their intentions. It's a state that wants to change the international system is more likely to have aggressive intentions, and a state that wants to maintain it is more likely to have peaceful intentions. Okay, so that's where the status quo revisions distinction comes in. Now, I'd say two things. One is it's not at all clear to me that that's the case. You can maintain the system by knocking off competitors, right? So the, the classic example is the United States of America is defined as a status quo power um, since 1990. Um, I would defy you to uh, argue that it has not had aggressive intentions. Um, so I, I just don't think that connection, but let, let's assume that that connection holds. The revisionist states have aggressive intentions and the status quo powers have peaceful intentions. I don't think that interest drives intentions. The interest that drives state intentions is security. Security is the highest, so you can have all sorts of intentions as a state. I'm sorry, interests, you know, all sorts of interests. You can want to maximize your wealth. You can have revisionist status quo. You can want to spread your ideology around the world. 
But at the top of that hierarchy is security, because you can't achieve any of the other uh, motives, interests, without security. Right? So security is number one. And again, security has can lead to two kinds of different intentions. But which is all to say that security drives your intentions. These other interests don't drive your intentions. In, in choosing to be aggressive for security reasons, you might also be furthering your revisionist desires. But it's not your revisionist desire that is driving your intentions, right? The driver of intentions is your interest in security. Um, and so, so that's where I come out. So the states have, again, I agree, they have all sorts of motives, interests, whatever you want to call them. Um, but all of them are subordinate to security. Um, and therefore, they're not reliable indicators of intent because they don't actually drive intent. It's security that does. Okay, all right, Jihei Shim. Um, I have several questions as well, but I'm going to try to limit them to two. Um, I'd like to go back to uh, Dan's um, comment on the worst case scenario. So, so states assess threats by examining capabilities, is what you said. Right. Mm -hmm. So looking at what other states can do to you means to me um, thinking about all the terrible possibilities that could happen to you. Right. So, I mean, I'm not going to say that it's equivalent to assuming the worst, but then it could still include considering the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. So, um, but then... So, are is does it include considering the worst, or uh, does it not? Or if not, um, how is it qualitatively different from acting based on the worst case scenario? And also, um, I mean, this is a clarification question. But if there are changes to a state's capabilities, um, then do you consider? When you when you observe it from outside, is that is that considered a capability, or is that an action about um, the state's capability? Um, yeah, I agree. When you examine capabilities, you, you're examining all the terrible things they can do to you, and this is why. Conf competition, not com competition, is ineradicable in international politics, right? Because, I'm, as you know, I'm only interested in great powers. All great powers, by definition, can do each other grave harm, which is why you cannot take competition out of great power politics. So I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, now, having said that, so fear, competition, is never negligible, right? There's always, it, there's, there's always some of it, right? Um, it will vary depending on how much capability is out there, right? More capable states, more of a threat. Less capable states, less of a threat. So it's not invariant. It varies, but again, always, always at a high level, but varies within that high level, right? But that's not the same as assuming the worst. That is basing your judgments on someone's capabilities, um, having already decided what you think about their intentions with some certainty, moderate certainty, slight certainty. Um, so um, the behavior that follows 
could indeed flow from could be you could argue that it follows from worst case thinking, but the actual thinking is not worst case thinking. Uh, when you when you look at what people are doing, they're trying to figure out intentions. They come to a conclusion with a certain amount of confidence, and then they look at and because it's not enough, they look at capabilities. But nowhere in that decision process is worst case thinking about intentions um, at work. Carrie. I didn't ask the second question, but we should probably keep yeah. moving. Yeah. Um, so I want to continue with this thing about capabilities because I think this is the this is the part that was most curious for me because in your it it almost sounds as though you're saying that capabilities can substitute in some way or measurements of capabilities can substitute in some way for a deciphering of intentions. Um, from a rationalist point of view, though, I, I tend to think of it as you look at capabilities in order to measure the cost of the error term. So you come to a conclusion about a state's intentions, and with some, some probability x, you think that their intentions are malign or benign. And then, but there's an error term there. And then you look, in my, I would think of it as you then look to capabilities to say, if I'm wrong, then you know, what is, what is the potential cost to me? And that's why it's important to measure capabilities after you look at a state's intentions. Um, have you thought about, about this? Why would that not be an appropriate way of looking at the measurement of capabilities rather than subject to intentions? Because if I think, I'm very certain that, say, the United Kingdom is not going to, does not have malign intentions against the United States. Um, but it's a fairly powerful country. It possesses nuclear weapons. Um, it could potentially cause the United States great harm. But we don't pay that much attention to the capabilities of the United Kingdom because the certainty is much higher than, say, the certainty of Russia or China. Um, and so... You know, is there a difference between looking at it in terms of what harm can they do you if you're wrong versus trying to substitute that for a measure of intentions? Um, the counter-argument that I think of is, is NATO or Five Eyes or any of these other information and transparency um, organizations that actively share, share capabilities. Um, how does your theory explain, you know, three nuclear weapon states, sharing information, sharing capabilities, um, pan-European projects, etc., that that actively try to do cooperative security arrangements. Um, like I said, you, I feel quite certain that the United Kingdom or France are not going, don't have malign intentions against the United States. So is this an exception, or how do you explain these these things? Uh, the short answer to the error term is I hadn't thought about it. Um, I hadn't thought about the sequencing. I, 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 as, as you know, I had always thought of it, intentions and then what comes next. Um, so I hadn't thought about different sequences. Um, so uh, I should think about that. Um, what I will say, though, is, um, uh, and, and I mentioned it um, in the introductory comments to the written piece. Um, I'm not sure this theory travels to non-great powers. Um, and 
I would count the UK and France amongst those today. I have a list of great powers there. They're not in it. Um, and I'm not sure what's going on there. I'm not sure whether it's because they're not great powers, and we can disagree about this, but because they can't do you real harm. That's my, that's my version. That's not your version. Um, and therefore, you don't care about checking their intentions, or that you know their intentions are good, and therefore you don't check their capabilities, or you, or you discount their capabilities. I'm not sure how that works. Um, but long and short is, I, I just don't think it applies uh, as uh, easily to non-great powers for the reasons that I say uh, in the piece. Um, then, yeah, there's no question that NATO, um, I mean, you actively uh, share information about capabilities. Um, Dan wrote a book about transparency um, of regimes, and that was actually even more applicable because it was about um, sharing information about intentions, right? Um, I think the counter to the counter argument, I'm trying to keep up, the, the, the counter to the counter argument um, is that it, intentions are known by a small group that want to keep them secret. Um, there is no way they will tell some delegate to NATO or some ambassador what their intentions are. Um, and even if they were to do it, there is no way a trained ambassador would tell another state what his state's intentions were. Um, so I, I just don't think, I, I think that um, the, 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 the limited number of people who know, that's the most important thing, and second, um, the uh, terrific costs to revealing intentions <coughs> keeps them, even in those open forums, uh, keeps intentions secret, which is not to deny that um, absolutely um, they know a lot about each other's capabilities. But I think intentions are different. Okay, thank you. Amitabha? Yeah, first I'd like to ask you what, what are you trying to do? And it seems to me that what you're trying to do is to try to have a defense of realism, which is in the following lines, that um, um, if you think about states as decision makers having some interest, let's say, and then also you look at capabilities, right? and then you recognize that the world is uncertain. And because of uncertainty, you claim that knowing other countries, great powers, interests are, in a sense, more uncertain that states therefore will look at something that's less uncertain, therefore capabilities, which is what realists do, and that's, that's the tragedy. Not, not, not the, that road to hell, right? It's like the tragedy of great power politics is like hell. Is, is that what you're trying to do? Basically, is that the bottom line? Um, yeah, though, um, no, no, I, 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 would, I would say that I'm just interested in, because intentions seem to be central to policy and academic debates. Right. And no one has actually um, taken time to write something about whether you can reach confident conclusions about intentions, and it seems to be such a central question. Just yeah, want to answer yeah, the question. Yeah. No, I, I'm not saying that your intention yeah. is to defend realism, or even know what your intentions are. Yeah, he doesn't uh, know what his intentions are. Your intention is probably to write a book and 
get some citations and get away with that. Okay. But, uh, you, you, you probably don't even know what they are, but, but I'm not going to go there. Okay. Um, my, my, my questions actually are, uh, are two, and I'll bring up the rest of them uh, over dinner perhaps. Okay. So it's going to be a great dinner. <laughs> so, so one uh, issue is uh, intentions as a concept. Right? Now, if you look at rational choice theory, intentions are not really made into a concept. It is something that's deduced from some basic givens, which are preferences, objectives, and constraints. And from that, they make some strategies or plans, which is, I think, what you're calling... Intentions. Yeah. Intentions. Mm -hmm. okay, so, so intentions are not a given thing, right? Mm -hmm. and, and they depend, incidentally, uh, also on capabilities, too, right? Because that's going to be part of the... Sure. You have to be able to do them. Yep. Okay. Now, uh, now, this works in theory in terms of setting out a model and saying, okay, this is what we do, but, but I'm having trouble translating these concepts into the questions you're talking about. Okay, because there are all these different interests, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there are all these different. When you say go ultimate goal of security, I, I don't know what that means. Okay, but you seem to know. Okay, and then you then you seem to say, well, but there are many ways of doing that, and it's not clear, right? Uh, so, so I'm wondering, is it even worth building up this edifice with interests, or or I mean, your argument will not change if you say interests are really, basically, they probably don't even exist. Okay. So let's not focus on those. Okay. Not that they're uncertain. Okay. So, so that's my first point. My second point is about uncertainty. We've talked about this a great deal, and I don't really see you using the idea of uncertainty as the way that I understand it. And you know, people like Keynes or you know, these people who focused on uh, on uncertainty have talked about it. The issue is not when you toss a coin, right? And you know what's going to, going to land. You're uncertain about what will land, but that's not uncertain. No. That is that is probability, which is objective. Yeah. Right? So, and this sort of relates to the point you're making about error terms. It's a whole different world with uncertainty. But I don't see you using that at all. You know, when you say the world is uncertain, is that what you mean? Keynesian, Knightian uncertainty. If so, then when you say, well, that applies to intentions, but not to capabilities. I don't think that that logic is very clear. Uh, there is one way that that people act okay, in an uncertain situation. One one possible way, which is to focus on what they think they know about. Okay, and this fits into your argument very well. Okay, uh, but that's not the only way they might act. There are many many other ways they can act by creating institutions, by by maintaining some sort of, you know, not doing things, you know, maintaining some more liquidity, as Keynes called it, okay? So, so I think you're, by trying to defend uh, realism, you're taking one particular almost axiomatic approach, which it, with uncertainty you cannot really do, because it has to be contextual, it has to be norm-based, and look at the whole world around you. It's not something you can just say, aha, here's the argument and therefore realism wins. That, that, I think, is completely un antithetical to the whole idea of uncertainty. I, I, perhaps I can elaborate on this more later. Okay. And, and the final part is the capabilities. Okay, remember, we got two more people. Behind oh, you. Okay, I'll stop there. Um, okay, uh, the edifice of interests um, isn't even worth it. Um, 
I, I think, as I said, I only telegraphed it uh, in the talk. Um, in all, all walks of life, um, you go to the legal literature, you go to philosophy, um, you go to international relations. Um, the, the idea that intentions are unobservable is is not really debated that much. As I said, there are some people, but I think that, and so the, the question is, where do you go from there? And everyone then goes to what actors want interests and what actors do as proxies for or ways you, that you can get to in intentions via inference. Um, and I, I completely agree with you. There, there are a ton of different interests. Um, and um, that was my re response to Sukjun. There are a ton of different interests. Um, and you, as you said, you, you can't know, you can't know all of them. You can't know how, you can't figure out how strongly they're held, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I do think that people in that vein of thinking are on strong ground when they say states can know, of course, where no is not 100%, but you can know that other states want security. And then we can get into definitions of what security is. Um, but I would just cite Hobbes to you, right? He says it's the only thing that can be known by reason, that we all want to survive. Um, it's the only thing. So that, that's why it's in there. It's, it's the strongest case um, for inference from interest. Um, the uncertainty thing, uh, <laughs> I don't think we should voice this on everyone else because we've been around this block. But I don't think, um, so the way I think of Keynes and Knight, they're saying that uncertainty is something that is not probabilistic, right? Not objectively probabilistic. Not objectively probabilistic, I agree. But what I think I'm talking about is lack of information, um, not about whether there's an und underlying probability distribution. Of course, there's not an underlying probability distribution of you know, a state's intentions today. Um, so I, I completely agree with that, but I, I think that's a separate issue um, to, um, as I say, ambiguity uncertainty, which is what I think I'm more interested in. Okay, in the interest of time, I'm going to recognize myself and Sean Braniff, and then Sebastian will give you the, uh, the last word. Um, one question. Um, you, you had a great uh, quote from Cyrus Vance, uh, basically saying, you know, you can't know intentions, that's why you got to plan worst case and look at capabilities. Uh, he didn't say plan worst case. He says you have to improve. Okay. Uh, you have to be. Otherwise, you're in Dan Lindley territory. <laughs> well, I think the, the, the point is in, <clears throat> in response, I think, to Siuk Jun, you said policymakers basically understand your argument. The, the, the real dummies are the Charlie Glazers and the Andy Kids of the world who haven't sort of figured this out. So, it, if that's true, uh, what, what are you. What's your broader contribution? You're straighten out, straightening out a bunch of you know knucklehead academics, but in terms of the people that really matter, they already know it. Okay, I think that's one might say that. Um, I want to ask you uh, about a theory of uh, intentions that you don't use that I would have thought a good old structural realist would have used. And then I want to suggest a uh, counter-argument uh, that you should uh, uh, address. 
The theory of the irrelevance of intentions that you don't use in the uh, paper is the argument about unintended consequences. And it's basically because of the structure of the international system, uh, what states intend to do is largely irrelevant. You could have states that seek hegemony, uh, but because of the balancing dynamics uh, inherent in international politics, you get a balance of power. Therefore, uh, the uh, intentions of that act are really irrelevant to what you want to understand, uh, which are the uh, dynamics of that system. You can make the same argument with polarity, bipolarity, multipolarity. So that's a structural argument you don't embrace, and I'm sort of curious uh, you know, why you don't. Now, the alternative argument is the costly signals argument. And there, they recognize, as I understand the literature, all the problems with divining intentions that you've outlined. But their response is to say, you can take certain steps um, to demonstrate that, in fact, uh, your intentions are really X. So, you know, I say I want to have free trade with you, um, you know, but I don't impose certain domestic laws. You're going to say, hey, you know, he's a weasel. Mm -hmm. Conversely, I might uh, pass uh, certain domestic laws uh, that are designed to give you higher confidence uh, that I'm really sincere about uh, this cooperative arrangement. It seems to me that's going to be the most serious intellectual argument you're going to have to uh, in, uh, engage, and, and one that recognizes, I think, a lot of your argument about the difficulty of divining intentions. Sean, you get the last uh, question, and then Sebastian gets the last word. Okay. I'm going to have to save a couple for later as well, but I'll just ask this. Um, so you've noted in, in the discussion side, I don't know if I necessarily saw it in the article, that um, that states, yes, they, they are concerned about information, and they're doing a lot to try to get information. The problem is they can only become moderately uh, certain. They can't become confident. And so my question is, what does near certainty, or what does confidence get us that moderate certainty doesn't? Um, is it the fact that there's just more mistakes, more miscalculations? If I'm, if I'm confident, if, if I'm near certain, does that equate to being more right, and I just can't get there? Um, and so for me, I, I think the big question coming out of this, out of this and kind of crudely put is, I could buy your argument, right, and I could agree, yes, you've won me over that states can't uh, be near certain, that they can't be confident, but um, but why do I care if, if they can be moderately confident? I know I know why you don't want to talk probabilities, but if, if moderately confident is above that 50% range, right, if, if, it's, if it's more confident than less confident, if that's now motivating me to action, that I've made an evaluation and I am going forward with this policy because I am moderately confident, um, what would uh, near certainty get me that, that moderate certainty does? Um, Mike, uh, on apart from the microphone's not on, right? No. That's apart from taking down Charlie and Andy Kidd, uh, what what's important about this? Um, tells everybody that competition with China is inevitable, um, and you better get ready, and don't waste your efforts on reassuring China, and uh, forget about the war on terror, get ready for what really matters, allocate your resources properly, find allies, um, because 
competition is inevitable. Um, so it's, I mean, I think it has huge uh, national security implications. But even um, Barack Obama got that. You know, the whole pivot to Asia was recognition that, uh, you know, there was a high probability sure. of a military or of a security competition with uh, sure. with China. As you as you know, and as I sort of telegraphically said at the beginning of the talk. There are a ton of people who think that this situation can be managed, that somehow, you know, we don't have to compete. Um, in fact, I would say that was the majority view. Um, but uh, Barack Obama is a smart policymaker, which is why. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, costly signals. So, Suk Jun pointed out one of the major critiques um, of, of ambiguity, which is that there are certain uh, interests. Right, that are that are not subject to ambiguity, right? Um, and I, I hope I answer that question. You bring up the other big argument, which is that there are certain actions that are not um, ambiguous. Um, and a couple of things. Now, one is if you read what these people say very very carefully, they say that um, costly signals will move the needle a little bit, but they admit that in international politics, you can't get the confident. Um, which, by the way, is why they always go to the empirical record to say, oh, states could figure out intentions. Because their theory doesn't really get them to confidence, and they're, sort of, sort of, they're, they're stuck there. Um, and, uh, and they acknowledge, by the way, that you can't engage in truly costly signals, which is my uh, point about you won't take unambiguous action, because it's too dangerous, and they themselves admit that, which is, again, why they talk about you can get useful information from signals. Um, but uh, they got themselves into all sorts of trouble by saying that it's a dangerous world, right, where you need to be confident. They say, you know, if the costs are great and the benefits of cheating on somebody are great, then you need to be confident. They say that. And then they say, here are all sorts of ways that you can be less than confident. Um, so... I mean, that, that's my response to that argument. Um, uh, you've asked me about unintended consequences every talk I've given, regardless of the subject matter. <laughs> so I consistently will table that one, um, because I, I'm conscious we've run out of time. What was unintended consequences? Yeah. Intended so I'll just answer Sean's question. Um, what does confidence get us? Um, you can't be 100% certain. Um, but as Keynes said, to make Amitabha happy, right? Even in uncertain situations, we have to act, right? Um, and human beings uh, will act if they're confident. And if you're confident that another state is benign, then benign states can cooperate and avoid competition, and they can get together and deal with malign states. And it's a much, much better world. So uh, th there's all sorts of things that confidence gets you. Um, and on that happy note, uh, it just, but we can't get that. Yes. <laughs> uh, it just remains uh, for me then, uh, first of all, to thank Sebastian for getting the uh, 2017 uh, social season uh, off to a great start, and uh, ask you to join me in a round of applause. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series,
please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.